Welcome to Unraveling Pink, a podcast tackling gender bias at work. I'm Annie Rogaski. Happy New Year. I hope you enjoyed a two-week break from Unraveling Pink, or maybe you used that time to get caught up. Either way, I'm glad to be back. And as promised, I'm trying out a new format. In this episode, you'll hear two conversations. The first conversation is one that I had with Stephanie Lamkin, the founder of Blendor. And then the second conversation is with the ally that she talks about in her story, Dan Malmer, or in his words, co-conspirator. As this is the first episode where I tried out this new format, first the male ally moment story, and then the male ally reaction, let me know what you think. I may do this with another couple episodes in the future, but I'm excited to hear what you think about this format. If it resonates, if you prefer just the male ally moment by itself, let me know your thoughts. Here's Stephanie. It is my pleasure today to talk with Stephanie Lampkin of Blendor. Welcome, Stephanie. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and about your company? Yes. Uh, so I am a DC native. I came to San Francisco to launch Blendor, which is uh, inclusive recruiting and people analytics software that mitigates unconscious bias in hiring, which I created in response to a lot of companies who are having difficulty attracting and retaining diverse talent um, under the guise of a pipeline problem, which from my own personal experiences, I know not to be the full story. Um, So I wanted to create technology that would improve the systems through which we screen people um, and recruit to better enable more meritocratic hiring processes. That's fantastic. And, you know, I hear the pipeline problem raised a lot. And I I always want to push back on it. And I feel like I don't have the greatest um, support in the data to do that. Like, I I feel like it's not as big of a problem as people say that it is. But is there particular information that you can share with us about how the pipeline problem is, is not as big of a problem or as significant as people are making it out to be? Yeah, well, there there are different reasons for why different demographics of people pursue certain careers, industries, et cetera, and why sort of we have social dynamics within the workplace that maybe favor men or women or vice versa. But uh, within the context of tech, um, we know that the majority of companies are only 25% female uh, 2% African-American and 3% Latino, but the number of students graduating with the degrees that these companies hire from are sometimes double or triple that mm-hmm. number, um, mm-hmm. which means, you know, there are people who have the skills and education that aren't being hired. And so that from that data alone, we know that pipeline is not purely the reason for why there's such a discrepancy. Mm-hmm. And so the recruitment process itself is, is potentially, or, or is really the way we've currently been handling it, adding in some bias that reduces the existing pipeline? Yeah, there's been some studies done um, tracking actually progress over 25 years around job discrimination um, and, and bias based on gender and race, and it's consistent. Um, in 2017, we have just as many signs of bias, meaning if you are 
uh, Caucasian applying for a job with equivalent skills, experience, education as someone who's African-American or Latino, you're 36% more likely to get a call back. And that has, that's, that data we do have, and, and it's, been, it's been the same, unfortunately, for three decades. Yeah. And so what are some of the things that you do at Blendor? Is it like removing, um, identifying information that might trigger biases from resumes and things like that? Or what are some of the steps that you take in the process to reduce that bias? Yeah, so part of it is initially just broadening the scope of where companies can recruit from. So targeting organizations and universities that have a huge uh, member or student base of uh, certain demographics that are underrepresented. And then, yes, presenting those candidates and their qualifications in an unbiased way. So no name, no photo, no indications of age, ability, or veteran history, et cetera. Um, And then the final piece of it is actually pretty key, and that's around more transparency into where bias may be happening throughout the process. So we actually track, once the identity of a candidate is revealed, we track to see how far along different demographics of people make it in the recruiting funnel to identify if bias is happening with specific hiring managers or specific teams, specific orgs, um, so companies can sort of remediate their own um, internal processes or HR um, decisions around that. That's fantastic. I, mean, I, I don't have a, a ton of ex, uh, personal experience with the HR process on the company side, but I know that just being in a startup um, in the last year, we've we've looked more carefully at, um, you know, I, I'm from talking a lot in, with people about gender bias. I, I have read a lot about the different like trigger words that might not encourage women to apply and things like that. And so there are things mm-hmm. where, I know that there are processes um, where you really need to pay close attention to, for example, how you write your job description to make sure that you're inclusive in the candidates that you're bringing in. Is that something that you help companies with as well, or is it more just at the point that they are um, bringing candidates in or looking for candidates that, that Blendor would be brought into the mix? We've actually, so there are a couple of different companies that are focused on optimizing the job description to be more inclusive, but there's been research that shows that if you optimize your wording to be more inclusive for women, you may be ineffective in attracting um, underrepresented minorities or individuals mm-hmm. with disabilities. And so we haven't made as much effort to ensure that companies are using the proper wording and job descriptions. And also in part, we sort of think they'll become obsolete. Like at some point, a lot of this stuff will be automated. You have a role, you sort of know the you know, fundamental skills, et cetera. We know the fundamental characteristics of candidates and we make that, that matching happen without an actual job description. Um, mm-hmm. but we're actually more focused on helping companies use people analytics to identify um, what's working and what's not in terms of attracting the right team members um, for a particular role. So if you're a company, you know, you provide us with a job description and some context around who is an ideal candidate for that particular team. Um, and then on the back end, we, we make sure that we're matching you with the appropriate talent. And if for whatever reason there is a trend where a particular job is only attracting applicants of a certain demographic, um, we provide you the data to highlight that and then give you sort of tools to do A-B testing around how to optimize to attract a broader talent pool. Well, that's great. Well, I'm so thrilled that 
you are doing this and that Blender is out there. And I hope that our listeners check it out and tell their companies about it um, because it is a, a great way to try to even the playing field a little bit more than we have in the past. So congratulations to you on building such an awesome company. And I've see, I see accolade after accolade for you and your company. So I, I hope that your success continues for a long, long time. Thank you. Well, so um, I would love to talk with you about male ally moments. As you know, I, I highlighted male ally moments throughout the month of November and um, you and I weren't able to connect during that month, but I'm continuing to do that on Unraveling Pink in 2018. And I would love to hear your male ally moment story. Yeah, so my male ally moment um, happened when I moved to California um, from New York to launch Blendor. And I applied for an accelerator program, Stanford Stardex. I actually had to apply twice. Um, to even get accepted. But I think a huge part of my acceptance hinged on this one particular male ally. His name is Daniel Malmer. And I met him at a tech inclusion conference about a month before the second time I applied for Stanford Stardex. And, um, you know, when he found out that I was applying, he immediately reached out and said, hey, if you need any tips or tools or things I can help you with throughout the application process, I'm here to help. And I said, oh, great. That's that's really nice of you. Um, and ultimately, I, I reached out. I leveraged a lot of his advice and got accepted. What I found out later from Dan is that he was privy to private discussions with the um, Stanford Stardex staff and team. Um, where they, there were significant doubts about my ability um, to launch a product, to, to engineer a product. And I think a lot of that had to do with much of the same biases that I'm working to tackle with our software in that you just don't see a lot of women, and particularly a lot of African-American women, technical founders building products that scale. Mm -hmm. And if it weren't for him being in the room, during those discussions, really advocating for my abilities and my resourcefulness. You know, even though I have a Stanford engineering degree and an MIT degree, it's, you know, you still need those people in the room when oftentimes your abilities are, are being doubted. And so that's probably one of the greatest um, ally moments that I know of um, since we started this company. And Dan, even later, came on as our interim CTO and has just been over the course of our entire relationship, super supportive and, and very important to our success. What a fantastic story. It's, it's, it's almost a theme that I'm, I've been hearing from women that, that there's, there are conversations that are happening where they're not present mm -hmm. and there's a, male in the room who's advocating for them. And it's so critical. Um, and it's, it's interesting. There's um, uh, the Amplify Lab and Joanna Bloor works on helping women and men, um, but primarily women cra craft their, their um, description of themselves and what they offer well enough so that someone who is in a room without them present knows how to present them in a way that is mm. both authentic to them and um, persuasive to the people in that room. And I'm curious whether, like, was there some 
um, interaction that you and Dan had before he was in that room where he knew enough about you and your skills and talents to have the ammunition to advocate for you when you weren't there? That's a really good question. I think there we didn't necessarily have one-on-one interactions. I didn't necessarily get from my bio or resume. But what is unique about Dan is um, he's a you know he's a white male engineer, like hardcore. Was early days in Netscape in Silicon Valley, um, but at some point in his career, he realized the importance of inclusion, and so he was one of the early advisors for Hackbright Academy, which is an all-female coding school, and then also a mentor for Code 2040, which is a um, internship program for underrepresented minorities. So just based on his personal experiences with underrepresented talent who are often underestimated and undervalued, I think he was able to identify where bias was happening in these conversations because he is he sort of had that exposure. And I often tell people one of the biggest problems with diversity in Silicon Valley is the lack of diversity, right? If, if you don't have people that have had firsthand experiences working with competent, qualified, equally influential and powerful people of different, of different races and genders, um, it's, it's a tough sell that, yeah. um, that they're missing something important. And so, so I think Dan's own personal experiences um, were really important in his, his you know, motivation and ability to advocate for me um, when I wasn't there. Mm-hmm. Wow. There's a couple things that you just said that I think are important on, on, uh, on two fronts. One, one being that you talked about how, so Dan was part of the majority group. And, and mm-hmm. when you're in that majority group, it's so important to be able to identify when biases are happening and you're probably in the best position to see that because you're in the group that is Mm -hmm. making those mistakes and having those biases Um, and so having that perspective and being aware of it and and looking for when a majority group may be falling into those biases is really important but then also the flip side of that that you highlighted which I think is even more important is, is having experience with people in underrepresented groups so that you, you see that talent, you see the benefit of a diverse perspective. And I think having that experience gives you even more motivation to want to advocate for having those voices in the room, having those voices as part of discussions and the fact that it gets us all to a better place or a better product um, those two together sound like it made him a really powerful advocate for you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, empathy is a is a really, really important aspect of all of this. And I think the hardest pill for individuals who are in the majority to swallow is that they have achieved um, their success in part because of their privilege. Mm-hmm. And once once you're able to like fully accept that concept, I think that's the hardest step um, mm-hmm. in the process of just becoming more aware. I mean, Dan would tell me stories of how he would go to a restaurant for lunch meetings, the same restaurant, they knew him, um, but when there was a huge difference in where they would seat him depending on the race of his lunch partner. Oh, and wow. never realized it before until, you know, I guess, like they say, he became a little bit more woke. He became a little bit more aware um, and making an effort to notice differences 
and, mm-hmm. and how different types of people are treated. But it's yeah, it's um, the the first step is is seeing <laughs> that there that there is a uh, that there is a power difference in dynamic. Yeah, no, that's really true. It's I and mean, it's great that we're seeing and reading a lot more about privilege. Um, and I think people are paying a lot more attention to it now than they have in the past. I mean, certainly we have a long way to go, but um, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I can, I can say from my own experience, um, just realizing that and hearing stories of, of people who had completely different experiences than me because of the color of their skin. And just, I mean, it, it's, it's, it is eye opening. It's really, hard to 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 be in the position of hearing other people suffer those kinds of indignities and violence just because of of how they look and um i know we have a long way to go but i agree with you that identifying that privilege and acknowledging not only that you have it but also that you can use it for uh elevating others around you is really Mm -hmm. important absolutely yeah um, well, I don't remember if I told you this, I often forget to tell guests, but I would love if you have a challenge for our listeners. Um, what I like to do is to have our guests, uh, encourage our listeners to do something that they could go into work tomorrow and do, or just start conversations, but something that would reduce the bias that we experience in our workplaces. And maybe it has something to do with recruiting. But if there's some challenge you would like our listeners to undertake, um, I would be great. Yes. And uh, this is a great question because um, my wheels are already turning about creating something like this that's uh, scalable. But my biggest advice to people, and I actually got this idea after attending Burning Man for the first time, which is (laughs) 60,000 people, but um, very, very homogenous people, mind you. Um, which is supposed to be this transformational experience, which it was. But I think if you as a listener want a really transformational experience, go on Facebook events and find something, a party, an event, a meetup where you will be the minority, whether it be gender minority, uh, ethnic minority, religious minority, um, and just attend and just go and feel the experience of what it's like to um, not have a stronger voice, um, not have a stronger presence, not have, um, not be regarded as the go-to or, or be able to mansplain things. And I think that is truly transformational. I, Adam Grant, who's a professor at Wharton, said it wasn't until he was in his mid-30s did he ever experience what it was like to truly be a minority. Um, in, in a setting that wasn't, you know, charitable giving, right? And so... Mm-hmm. I think I think that could be really impactful in terms of helping to build empathy. I love that. That's fantastic. And it's it's challenging. It's I think it it's scary for people to put themselves in a vulnerable position, but mm-hmm. that's a great way to learn and experience and gain some perspective of what other people experience on a daily basis. So that's Absolutely. fantastic. Thank you so much. I love it. And I hope that our listeners who take this challenge on, and hopefully there are many of them, will report back on Twitter or 
uh, shoot me a note on the contact page, but I'd love to hear about your experiences and maybe we can have some people come on and talk about what it was like. Great. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Stephanie. It was great talking with you and I appreciate the stories that you shared and the challenge that you issued. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Before we get to the conversation that I had with Dan, here's a message from another podcaster. Discovering podcasts can be really challenging. There aren't great tools or platforms out there to find other podcasts that you're interested in. So sometimes just hearing from other podcasters is the best way to get a sense of what they're doing with their shows. I'll be trying this out in my January episodes. So let me know what you think. Hey, I'm Melanie from Mindspace Over Coffee. The best conversations often happen over coffee. In this podcast, we dig deep to uncover helpful insights for living life better. Each week, I invite inspiring people with genuine stories, in-depth knowledge, and firsthand experience to discuss topics like fear, motivation, and adaptability, but in a way that's easy to follow and understand, like chatting with a friend at your favorite cafe. You can find me on iTunes, Twitter, and Facebook, or wherever you get your podcasts. Join me and my guests over coffee. I encourage you to give Mindspace Over Coffee a listen. There's some great insights in the episodes that affect us all, and they're really interesting conversations. Now here's Dan. This is Annie Rogaski, and it's my pleasure today to sit with Dan Malmer. Welcome. Thank you very much. It's nice to be here. It's great to have you. So our listeners will know your name, or at least your first name, because they've just listened to an ally moment from Stephanie Lampkin. And you were the person that she told the story about. You've listened to that story, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. What did you think of it? Well, it, I have mixed feelings because uh, on the one hand, it's always, uh, it's always nice to be appreciated. And um, I'm, I'm grateful that um, Stephanie thinks of me that way. Uh, on the other hand, I regret that um, what I did for her was noteworthy and isn't, isn't the norm. My perspective is that we should all be looking to help each other out. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, a lot of times that, that isn't the norm, I think. Yeah, the, the name I have given to these stories on this podcast mm-hmm. is Male Ally Moments. Yes. And I've um, heard from some listeners of, of not particularly liking that term. How do yeah. you feel about that term? That's a great question. I it's it's a term that I I shy away from myself, and I don't I don't tend to consider myself an ally, and I don't use that term to describe myself anyway for a couple of reasons. Um, one of them is actually it was at the it was at the conference that I met Stephanie at. It was an inclusion conference, and there was a panel that was a an ally panel, mm-hmm. and I've been to a couple of ally panels, and they have some similarities in common. And in this particular one, the moderator asked the people on the panel for examples of what they personally had done to advocate for women or underrepresented minorities. And I think that my recollection is she asked six different times Mm -hmm. for examples of what these people had done Mm -hmm. personally. And finally, someone came up with something they had done 10 years prior or something like that. And so... It, it struck me that the bar for what's considered to be an ally is, is fairly low in some mm-hmm. cases. And 
one of the uh, one of the terms you'll hear sometimes in diversity spaces is someone wanting their ally cookie. Um, yeah. They're wanting credit <laughs> for being an ally without doing the what's usually very hard work uh, mm-hmm. of doing allyship. So I'm a little bit cynical about the term, mm-hmm. but I think that you know we should all be looking for opportunities to um, to be allies. W- one of the things I've seen in diversity spaces is people saying that they don't want allies. Uh, they want co-conspirators, mm-hmm. and so that's more of what I try to do. I try to look for opportunities to help people. Mm-hmm. So I guess you know I, I think that the way that I see it anyway, I think that the the work that needs to be done is more revolutionary, and I think that allyship doesn't quite reach the level of of the the actual hard work that needs to be done. Mm-hmm. I have to say, I haven't talked to a lot of white men who uh, have shared that perspective with me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think there are, are plenty of, of men who have good intentions mm-hmm. and who uh, do no harm, so to speak, and right. they don't actively um, take steps that they think are, are discriminating against right. women or, or um, underprivileged groups. But you are much more active and vocal and have um, really well thought out strategies for approaching this. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, on your path, how did you get here? Yeah, that's, that's a great <laughs> question. And it's something I've given, uh, I'm, I'm still actually searching for the complete answer to that because I don't fully know. And I've asked, it, it's actually something, part of the answer is that there's something in my family history that comes into play here because I have uh, a lot of family members who have who have wound up on similar paths mm-hmm. to a large extent independently from the path that I've taken, but they've become very interested in social justice and restorative justice. and. So there's clearly there are clearly family values or family culture um, is part of the answer. I think that when I look back on my childhood, I know that there are two things that have always been very important to me and my family, which is uh, fairness. I've always believed that people should be treated fairly, mm-hmm. and courage. Uh, I've always been encouraged to speak up when I see something that I, that I think is wrong. Hmm. So, so I think those two come into play. Another part of it is, I, is where I grew up, which is I grew up in a small town in Illinois called Kankakee, which is, when I was growing up, was about half white and half African American. And so I grew up in a different environment than uh, a lot of other Americans did. Mm-hmm. And uh, was ex- was exposed to uh, different a lot of different people and points of view. Um, a lot of it was uh, the influence of um, uh, my mother, who has been very uh, vocal and active in terms of advocating for other people. And uh, about six years ago, I started volunteering with an organization called Hackbright Academy, which is a coding boot camp for women. And I started learning about the uh, the challenges and, and I you know until that point I really bought a lot of the explanations about pipeline problem for mm-hmm. example yeah. or or the explanation that 
that I still hear, which is, well, women just aren't interested in software. They're more interested in other things. And by getting involved with Hackbrot Academy, I find myself attending technology events where I was one of the only men, for example. Yeah. And so I, I remember very vividly, I was at a hackathon that was sponsored by Hackbrot Academy and being involved in a conversation with four or five women and myself and feeling excluded from the conversation. Yeah, I was going to ask you what it was like to be in that environment. It was very uh, disorienting, but it was eye-opening because I immediately understood what um, it was like to be on the other side of that equation, mm -hmm. which you know many women in tech uh, experienced that for their entire career. Yeah. So um, from there, I got involved with an organization called Code 2040, which is an organization that helps black and Latino students get internships in the tech industry. And I started learning more about um, the particular challenges that they face. And um, I've just gotten more and more involved in understanding the, you know, the word that we use is privileges, the privileges that I've benefited from without realizing it as a, as a white male, because I simply look the part mm -hmm. and people just assume that uh, I must know what I'm doing because I look and I sound, uh, I present a certain way. Right. I remember one of my, just an example of this is that I probably five years ago, I was on my way to a Code 2040 event, and I was in San Francisco, and I was walking down Fifth Street, approaching Mission, and I saw a group of five or six African Americans in their early 20s, it looked like, and they were headed in the same direction that I was about to, to go. And my first thought was, oh, they must be going, or I wonder if they're going to this Code 2040 event that I'm going to. And as soon as I thought that, I realized, wow, that's the first time in my life that I saw a group of African-Americans and thought to myself, I'll bet they're going to this tech event. Hmm. And it was heartbreaking for me yeah. because I realized that the, uh, you know, my image of tech and my image of African-American were, were disjoint. Right. Right. Because that's, you know, I was, I've spent 20 years in tech what I had mostly seen was was white male or Asian male, and that becomes your exemplar. That mm -hmm. becomes the thing that you uh, that you think of when you think of tech. Yeah. So. So for our listeners who um, are male or white and are are interested enough in this topic to be listening to this podcast, mm -hmm. um, I think what what happens a lot, and I see this both on the. I mean, I have the position of being both. Uh, minority and majority, mm -hmm. um, yep. and it, which I think give, gives w white women a, mm -hmm. a particular perspective of, yeah. of understanding a bit of both perspectives. Yes. And I see a lot of frustration sometimes from uh, women when men who who want to help say, "Tell me what to do." Sure. Right. And, and the reaction from a lot of the more frustrated women is, go read, go learn, yeah, yeah. go figure it out, and yeah. then come talk to me and let's have an actual conversation. How, do you, how would you advise that's a great question. men to, to get educated on this? Yeah, I, that's a great question. And I think that one of, one of, the, one of my biggest challenges, and I, I suspect the challenge of m most white men is learning to learning what it feels like to not be centered 
and th this this is actually another reason that I have mixed feelings about the male ally label because part of part of, from my perspective part of the problem of the male ally label is that it centers the male ally and mm -hmm. this should really you know this this podcast should really be about Stephanie who's mm -hmm. outstanding mm -hmm. you know by herself and so part of the part of the male ally thing is kind of recentering the spotlight on the white male mm -hmm. who was kind enough you know to help right but th the reality is is that it feels good to be the center and so it's very difficult to take a step back mm -hmm. from that mm -hmm. and so what uh, what I've found challenging is to observe and listen and shut up mm -hmm. right because that's not the norm you know there's these studies for example where when a in a conversation between a man and a woman if the woman speaks 30 percent of the time the man feels the woman dominated the conversation right, <laughs> yes. right? i read those stats <laughs> yeah and so uh that sums up what a big part of the problem is mm -hmm. so in terms of what i would recommend one of, one of the things that i do is i find twitter very helpful mm -hmm. i follow a lot of very strong female and uh, black Latino voices on Twitter. Um, some, you know, some examples. Uh, Erica Joy Baker um, is one of my favorites. She's outstanding. Um, Ellen Pao, uh, Kelly Ellis, uh, Carla Monterosa from Code Twenty Forty. Um, these Stephanie, of course, are th these are all people who are very outspoken and have fantastic thoughts. And so the first step is to find strong, thoughtful. Uh, outspoken women and listen and then to resist the temptation to chime in right and that that's really the hard part the easy part is finding the uh, the outspoken women who have quality thoughts um, Stacy Patton's another great example I mean there, there's just no there's no shortage of, of women who have outstanding thoughts on this topic mm -hmm. but as a white male what white men, I mean, you know, I'm a white guy, and some of my best friends are white men. But the reality is, is that uh, white part of part of being a white man is that you believe that you are an expert on everything, mm -hmm. including being a woman. Yeah. Right. This is the you automatically think that you are entitled to speak on the the African American experience, the female experience, et cetera, et cetera. And the reality is, is that simply uh, I am not, and and white men are not. Did you hear Stephanie's challenge at the end of? I, I did, but I, I listened to it about a week ago, and I can't remember. Okay. Yeah. So she asked um, our listeners to go to an event where they would be oh, of in course. the minority. Absolutely. Okay. So you've already told some stories. You've mm -hmm. done this. Yeah. For our listeners who think, oh, that sounds like something I can do, but they don't know how to go about finding groups or. Yep. Do you have any suggestions? Absolutely. So um, I had coffee last year with a friend of a friend. So one of the things I do is I try to find one or two people a year to move from passive supporters to active supporters. And so I do that by meeting with people, by corresponding with people, by reaching out to them on social media. Um, and so I had coffee last year with a friend, friend of a friend, who said, look, I really, I, I feel that what's going on in this country is wrong. 
um, in terms of the way that uh, racism and whatnot. I want to do something, but I, I don't know any black people. And I'm embarrassed about that, but I really don't. And I said, well, if you want to meet black people, you have to go to places where there are black people. That's right. step one. You know, a lot of a lot of the, the um, a, a lot of the work I do is de- is dealing with uh, you know I'm passionate and I care about diversity in a lot of different ways, but a lot of the work I do happens to deal with anti-black racism because of my background, where I grew up, and and who my friends are and whatnot. Um, so in this case, it was anti-black racism, but this also pen, uh, this also applies to if the people that you're centering um, are Jewish or Muslim or women or LGBT or or whatever you know whoever they identify with. You have to seek out events that that serve those people. So in the case of African Americans, for example, you might look for a Black Girls Code event. If it is uh, the Jewish community, you might look for a Anti-Defamation League event. You know, I've been thinking about what leadership is. And one way to think about leadership is that leadership means doing something that nobody else is doing, right? And right now, there are very few white males who are speaking up about things. They might feel that there are injustices, but there are very few people that are uh, taking a uh, risk Mm -hmm. and uh, speaking out about it. And I think there needs to be more of that. And and I think, you know, I think that I'm a little bit uh, early. What my vision is, is that in the not too distant future, the, what we currently consider male allyship will just be the norm. Mm -hmm. That'll be the norm of behavior. Um, But we aren't, we aren't there yet. Well, hopefully we get there. Yeah. Do you have a challenge for our listeners? I would say if I'm speaking to the to the white male audience, sure. I would say if you're on social media, find half a dozen uh, feminists who uh, are outspoken and follow them and resist the urge to chime in with your opinion hmm. and listen to them and believe what they're saying. Because I think that you know, two of the two of the biggest mistakes I believe men make are, uh, especially white men, is one is not listening, and the second one is not believing. Mm-hmm. Right? Because the, the the person who's speaking, they're the expert, they're the authority on their experience. Sure. Right. And uh, I, I think that a lot of our problems could be solved if we simply would uh, believe what people are telling us. I think it's a fantastic challenge. Thank you. Um, One last question. What is it about Stephanie that made you go out of your way? That's a great question. So, well, like I said, one of my talents, and I can't claim credit for this, this is just something that um, appears to come naturally to me, is that I, uh, I seem to be able to identify talented people. Um, although with Stephanie, it's not that difficult to see how talented mm-hmm. she is. She's she's exceptional. And knowing what I know about how people make decisions about people, I knew that she was going to be disadvantaged in the process for selection into the program that I was in. Mm-hmm. I mean, I looked around me 
And there was no one in my program who was African-American and very few women mm -hmm. um, in this program. So uh, I knew that was going to be, I knew that was going to be a challenge for her. I knew that that was unfair. Yeah. And so I felt that, uh, you know, my opinion was that if anyone deserved to be in that program, she did. And that the selection process was going to, if I just left it to its own devices, mm -hmm. was going to unfairly exclude her. So to me, it was just a matter of fairness. So That's a great way to end it. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. It was great talking with you. Likewise. Hope you enjoyed this Bundled Ally episode. And I hope you join the challenges posed by both Stephanie and Dan. If you do go to an event where you are intentionally placing yourself in the minority of that group, I'd love to hear your experience, and if you're open to it, share it on a future episode of Unraveling Pink. I think it would be interesting to hear people's experiences, especially for those who are in majority groups, like what it felt like to be the minority in the room. So definitely reach out if you do this. I hope you do. I'm going to take on this challenge myself, and we'll probably talk about it in future episodes. I hope 2018 is a great year for you. One of my goals for 2018 for Unraveling Pink is to grow our listenership. So if you can share Unraveling Pink with a friend, colleague, someone you know, tweet about it, put it on Facebook, any way to get the word out, I'd really appreciate it. And I will keep you posted as to how my listenership grows, assuming it does, in 2018 and how we're doing against that goal. Together, we can unravel the pink bandana.